One day in December 1798, an artist in Baltimore places an ad in a newspaper. The subscriber, grateful for the liberal encouragement which an indulgent public have conferred on him in his first essays in portrait painting, returns his sincere acknowledgments. He takes liberty to observe that, by dint of industrious application, he has so far improved and matured his talents, that he can ensure the most precise and natural likenesses. As a self-taught genius, deriving from nature and industry his knowledge of the art, and having experienced many insuperable obstacles in the pursuit of his studies, it is highly gratifying to him to make assurances of his ability to execute all commands, with an effect and in a style which must give satisfaction. He therefore respectfully solicits encouragement. Apply at this house in the alley leading from Charles to Hanover Street, back of Sears Tavern. Signed, Joshua Johnston. Well, Johnston may or may not be a genius, but he is industrious. Over the next 20 years, he paints at least 80 portraits. Beautiful, often large pictures of well-to-do families around Baltimore. Until he's established himself, in effect, as one of the first black professional artists in the United States. And then, sometime after 1824, Johnston disappears. He disappears so completely that, more than a hundred years later, almost no one will remember his name, or if he even existed at all. This is the Object Podcast. Produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise Financial, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, a story of a man slowly emerging from the past buried under 200 years of racism and, as he put it, insuperable obstacles. I'm Tim Geary. In the 1930s, a man named J. Hall Pleasance starts looking for Joshua Johnston. Pleasance is a doctor in Baltimore, teaching medicine at Johns Hopkins University. But in his spare time, he's an art detective. For years, he's been tracking down information on thousands of pictures by Maryland artists for the Frick Art Reference Library in New York. And now, he's on the trail of Joshua Johnston. But there is very little trail to follow. Pleasance identifies more than a dozen paintings that appear to be his work, And then he tracks down some of the old Baltimore families whose ancestors are in the pictures, and he asks them about Johnston. He gets at least four different stories. Johnston was enslaved, or he was enslaved and trained as a blacksmith, or he was a black servant afflicted by consumption, 
or he was an immigrant from the West Indies. Also, his name may be Joshua Johnston, or Joshua Johnson, or William Johnson. Pleasance ends up finding Joshua Johnson, no T, in old Baltimore directories, listed as a portrait painter or limner, and as a free man, a, quote, free Negro householder. Pleasance calls him a nebulous figure, a Negro painter of considerable ability. But we should not set our standards, quote, unreasonably high, he writes, in appraising the artist. Whoever he is, Pleasant says, he must be classed with the primitives. Well, let's go back to the early 1800s, when Johnson is living in Baltimore. In 1798, when Johnson advertises his services in a Baltimore newspaper, the transatlantic slave trade is still going, right? And Baltimore is one of the largest slave trading ports in the country. Even after the transatlantic trade ends in 1808, Baltimore continues to traffic in humans, selling an estimated 30,000 people down the coast to the deep south. There are slave pens and slave jails, and, of course, enslaved people. Johnson is free, apparently, but not without great cost. Insuperable obstacles, right? Last year, the Washington County Museum of Fine Arts, a little more than an hour outside of Baltimore, opened the first major exhibition of Joshua Johnson's work in more than 30 years. And in the show's catalog, a professor of history, David Taft-Terry from Morgan State University, writes about the colonial experience of race as a line between white and everything else. And if you're everything else, those insuperable obstacles are everywhere, socially, politically, economically, established by whites and only removable by whites. Sally Hemings, he notes, the enslaved woman owned by Thomas Jefferson, had two white grandfathers. But still, she remained in slavery her entire life. Baltimore in the early 1800s may be one of the most popular places in the country for previously enslaved people to live, but it also has the highest mortality rate a free black people in all of Maryland. Johnson moves around a lot. For a while, he lives down by the harbor, by the slave trade. At some point, he lives in a neighborhood of furniture makers. He marries and remarries, apparently. In 1785, he's married to Sarah. By 1803... He's married to Clara, and he ends up with at least five children. But he also paints a lot. Mostly, he paints the upper middle class. White people like Archibald Dobbin, a Baltimore Customs House inspector, or the family of James McCormick, a prominent maker of furniture. And then, around 1817, he paints an image now at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, 
of Richard John Cock, age nine. A boy who was already dead when Johnson paints him. Richard John Cock is the son of John Cock, a privateer. Do you know about these guys, the privateers? Basically, legal pirates, right? Freebooters, buccaneers, picaroons, guys with ships and cannons and maybe peg legs, I don't know, who do exactly what you think they do. Roam the high seas, raiding other countries' ships, only with the blessing of the U.S. government. Baltimore is full of these guys. It's probably the biggest center of privateering in the entire country. And so, when the U.S. declares war on Britain in 1812, dozens of these privateers sail out of Baltimore with full permission to attack the British. And in many ways, they're more aggravating than the regular U.S. Navy. Despite their relatively small numbers, they're responsible for about a third of all captured British ships. The London newspapers start calling Baltimore a nest of pirates, which is one of the reasons the British attacked Baltimore in 1814, after they burned the capital in Washington. Not that it goes very well for them. The British bombard Fort McHenry for 25 hours while Francis Scott Key is watching from a ship, right? And when it's over, so is the war, essentially. Key writes the Star-Spangled Banner and the U.S. is free to become its own imperialist power, just like the British. But that's another story. For the privateers, the war is a job, and a tough one. There's a witness account from around this time of the aftermath of a privateer battle out in the high seas. The privateers' masts are all shot away, and with no sails, the ship just rolls around like a log in the trough of the waves. The decks are covered in blood. The cannons have come untied and are surging from one side of the ship to the other, while the sailors are throwing their dead comrades overboard. Some of them are drunk, and with the groans of the wounded and the confusion of the survivors, the whole scene, the witness writes, is a perfect hell. Tough job, but apparently someone has to do it. Someone like John Cock who lives on Ann Street in Baltimore, in Fells Point, the heart of the harbor and the slave trade, where Joshua Johnson also lives for a time. And somewhere, somehow, they meet. In the catalog for the recent show at the Washington County Museum of Fine Arts, the curator Daniel Folco wonders whether Johnson was allowed into the homes of his white subjects to paint them. Or he might see other depictions of his subjects or their families, something that would suggest their tastes and preferences. In the case of Richard John Cock, dead at age nine, Johnson is almost certainly coming to him one way or another. Johnson might be sketching the boy during the morning stage, when he's laid out before the funeral. Or he might be basing his image on conversations or 
even just the faces of other relatives. In any case, somehow he manifests the boy on canvas. In a blue shirt with gold buttons, with rosy cheeks and a slight smile, as though he were in the very best of health, but with one hand pointing to a moth in the bushes, a symbol of his untimely death. Johnson paints the boy in 1817, a few years after the war is over, and gives the portrait to John Cock and his wife, Elizabeth. And then, soon after, Captain Cock disappears at sea. Okay, let's jump ahead, all the way to the 1970s, when the black arts movement is taking off and Johnson's paintings are coming out of the woodwork, as it were, selling for more and more money on the art market. Some people see these incredible portraits and begin to wonder if perhaps the first great black American painter is really black, or even American. Because for all the attention he's suddenly getting, at this point, there's still just the one piece of evidence that Johnson is black. The old Baltimore directory that J. Hall Pleasance found, listing Johnson among free householders of color. People wonder, too, because of pictures like a portrait of the first Catholic bishop in the United States, John Carroll, painted by Johnson around 1810. Carroll was based in Baltimore, but certainly was a rank above a sea captain, or a furniture maker, or any of the other people who commissioned Johnson. And yet, there's his portrait, peering down from a wall in the Archbishop's residence at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Baltimore. A white man in a robe with a cross around his neck. Why would their paths have crossed? In the 1990s, a scholar proposes the elaborate explanation that Johnson has come to Baltimore from San Domingo, now Haiti, during the slave revolts of the 1790s. That he is, in fact, a French-speaking Catholic from the Caribbean. And that he makes the acquaintance of Bishop Carroll through Joseph Picot de Clorivet, a French priest who came to Baltimore after attempting to assassinate Napoleon. You know, that guy, whoever he was. Well, around the same time that this hypothesis is being floated, the Maryland Historical Society receives three volumes of Baltimore County court chattel records the bills of sale, and other paperwork related to slavery. And when the scholars Jennifer Bryan and Robert Torsha read them, they note a name on two of the records, Joshua Johnston. The chattel records had been sitting in the Baltimore City Courthouse for years and were going to be thrown out in 1954 when the building was being renovated. But a judge saw the records being tossed in a bin and asked to keep a few, rescuing, by pure coincidence, Johnson's bill of sale 
and record of manumission, the agreement releasing him from bondage. Brian and Torsha write a piece about their discovery, titled The Mysterious Portraitist Joshua Johnson, and reveal his real origins, not in Haiti or the Deep South, but right in Baltimore County. Johnson's mother is black, or biracial, her name lost to history, and is owned by a man named William Wheeler. Johnson's father is white, a man named George Johnston, who owns almost nothing. No land, no people, it would seem, and very little money. He's illiterate, living near Wheeler, out in the countryside. In any case, because his mother is enslaved, so is Joshua Johnson, at birth, right? But when Johnson is just a toddler, in 1764, his father scrapes together enough money to purchase his own son. And then, when Johnson is a teenager, his father frees him. Johnson is apprenticed to a blacksmith to learn a trade. So when he eventually settles in Baltimore in the 1780s, he has a wife and kids and skills. Literate, unlike his father, and he's free, unlike his mother. And at some point, he changes his name to Johnson, no T. Johnson baptizes all five of his kids at St. Peter's Pro-Cathedral in Baltimore, the first major Catholic church in the first Catholic diocese in the United States. Which suggests, of course, that he doesn't cross paths with Archbishop John Carroll because he's a French-speaking Catholic immigrant friend of a wannabe assassin. He crosses paths, most likely, For a simpler reason, he goes to church. David Taftary, the historian, suggests that Johnson may belong to an elite biracial class fighting for the end of slavery and civil rights. Or he may simply be among the class of professional black people who are teachers and pastors and artists in Baltimore. Either way, There's no evidence that he's so-called passing as white, right? Or concealing his blackness. He's not white, by the standards of colonial America, and everyone knows it. And so, Terry says, maybe it's time we start looking for Johnson, where he actually lives and works. In the black institutions and organizations of Baltimore, the black community. Johnson paints only two portraits, as far as we know, of black people. But they are, in some ways, as significant as the Archbishop portrait. 
pictures most likely of Daniel and Abner Coker, biracial brothers who helped found the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Daniel becomes the headmaster of the African Academy School in Baltimore. Johnson, at one point, lives just a few blocks away. And then, little by little, Johnson moves farther and farther away from the city center, until finally he's out in the exurbs, back among the fields and farms. Perhaps he's moving to be closer to clients who are moving out for more room and better air. Or perhaps he wants those things for himself. Why not imagine him with some agency, growing up with the country, maturing into a man who knows what he wants, and going out to find it? A man like his country, always pushing the frontier. In his best paintings, Johnson gives his subjects a kind of quiet dignity, enabled by thoughtful details and a steady hand. But at the end, his hand is not so careful. The faces aren't always as fine, though the decor often is. A bit of lace or furniture. Strange for someone who's always worked with his hands. Perhaps he's sick or sick and tired. For more than 20 years, he's painted the world the way his subjects want. But the real world is changing. In the 1790s, when Johnson began his career, the ratio of enslaved to freed black people in Baltimore was nearly four to one. But now, in the 1820s, the ratio is nearly reversed. There are more than 10,000 free black people in the city, and Johnson is one of them. And one day, he puts away his paints and brushes and walks out into that new world and never looks back. This has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gehring. You can listen to The Object on Apple Podcasts or Audible or Amazon Music, or ask your smart speaker to play it. Wherever you listen, leave us a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening.